Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The average emotion lasts seven minutes. And what keeps us stuck at the top of the wave are those three things. Repetitive thinking and acting on our emotions and trying to avoid and suppress our emotions. And that's how we get stuck with chronic emotional disorders. You're listening to Dr. Matthew McKay on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists committed to cutting-edge, integrative, and evidence-based strategies for living well. On this podcast, we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health. I am Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. We hope this podcast offers you ideas for how to live a full and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Hi, everybody. We have some great events coming up in the new year we want to tell you about. I'm going to be in Santa Barbara at Yoga Soup presenting a workshop on committed action. So if you have a change you want to make in the new year and you want to do it in a way that is sustainable and values-based, meet me at Yoga Soup on January 5th from 2.30 to 5. You can find out more information at yogasoup.com. If you enjoyed episode 102 with Dr. Stephen Hayes, who is the co-founder of ACT and wrote A Liberated Mind, we are having an online question and answer session about A A Liberated Mind. It's a great chance to talk to Steve Hayes directly, ask him questions, and listen to him talk about the book. That's happening on Tuesday, January 7th at 9 a.m. Mountain Time. So do the math on the time zones if you need to. And you can go to www.impactpsychcolorado.com for details about how to join us live. And if you are a mental health professional and identify as a woman, please come to Boulder, Colorado on March 7th. I'm doing a professional development workshop with Dr. Meg McKelvey. You know, as women in mental health professions, we have a lot to balance and we could get really depleted sometimes. And this workshop is about tuning into our professional values, recharging our batteries and coming together to support one another in our professional and personal growth. And we really welcome everyone from students in graduate school to seasoned mental health professionals to join us. It's going to be a wonderful event. And so also for that, just go to impactpsychologycolorado.com for more information. We have links to all of these events on our website, offtheclockpsych.com. Check it out. We have Dr. Matthew McKay on the show for a second time, Debbie, and we had him on a while back talking about his book, The New Happiness, but today he's talking about another strategy that he uses in therapy called DBT, Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, and a workbook that he's revised and that's coming out, the DBT Skills 
workbook. So this episode, I think, is going to be especially helpful for therapists or for people that have experienced DBT or interested in trying out dialectical behavioral therapy for themselves and looking for maybe a therapist that works with that. Yeah, that's great. I think that the full-on DBT approach is really wonderful for people with, you know, kind of more severe issues. And I trained in that back in when I was training, and I think you did too, Diana. And But if you're not in a program like that, the skills are wonderful. I mean, the interpersonal skills, the distress tolerance, the mindfulness skills, there's a lot of really good stuff in DBT that you can use with all kinds of different clients. I even use some of them with my kids sometimes, just teaching them about their emotions and being interpersonally effective. So I'm really excited to use this new book that's just kind of revised and updated. Yes. And just to give a nod to Marsha Linehan, who was the developer of dialectical behavior therapy. And it was really a groundbreaking therapy. When we were in graduate school, it was just sort of coming out and gaining a lot of momentum. And what was different about Marsha Linehan's work was that she took everything that we knew from behavioral psychology and added in these components from Zen Buddhism and more Eastern-based principles and created this new program that was really Uh, at the time, I think, surprised people. (laughs) They were excited about it. And it has a tremendous amount of skills to help you regulate your behavior, regulate your emotions, regulate your interpersonal relationships, and all based in uh, really good science. So I think that this, this workbook is fantastic, and it's fun to see it used in such a practical applied in such a practical way by Dr. McKay. He also, we also talk about in the episode, these skill cards that he go along with the workbook. And in the episode, I draw a a skills card at random from each of the different groupings of DBT. And it's kind of fun to see which skills cards I pull out. And those are another little handy tool to use. That sounds great. So take a listen to Dr. McKay all about the DBT skills workbook. Dr. Matthew McKay is a professor at the Wright Institute in Berkeley, California, and he's authored and co-authored numerous books, including the Dialectical Behavior Skills Workbook, but also the Relaxation and Stress Reduction Workbook, Self-Esteem, Thoughts and Feelings, When Anger Hurts, and Act on Life, Not on Anger. And McKay received his PhD in clinical psychology from the California School of Professional Psychology and specializes in cognitive behavioral treatment of anxiety and depression. Welcome, Dr. Matthew McKay. Glad to be with you. Today, we get to talk all about DBT. DBT has really evolved over time, and and your workbook is a demonstration of that evolution. DBT was originally designed for people with uh, motion dysregulation and specifically used a lot with borderline personality disorder. And now it's demonstrated effective with a number of different populations. At the foundation of these skills is that they're skills in emotion regulation. What, what does it take to regulate our emotions? Well, uh, I want to make a point uh, that it's not just emotion regulation, it's behavioral regulation mm-hmm. as well. Clients for DBT were folks who were struggling with borderline personality disorder, and they were not just emotionally regulated, but behaviorally, and did a lot of impulsive behaviors to cope with overwhelming emotions. Some interesting research came out and showed that when uh, you treat the emotion dysregulation, the behavioral dysregulation goes away. And so helping people get downregulation skills um, is really important, not only to help them feel better emotionally, but to lead less impulsive 
dangerous lives. So uh, emotion regulation problems are different from uh, people who have specific emotional disorders. You know, you can have an anxiety disorder, you can have de- depressive disorder, you can, you, can have, you can struggle with shame, you can have difficulties with anger. But people with emotion dysregulation are dysregulated across the board. All of their emotions are elevated. So when they get activated uh, in a situation that generates anger, they are enraged. So, and, and when they are sad, they are overwhelmingly depressed and sometimes to the point of suicidal ideation. When they are anxious, they're so scared and overwhelmed that they often get immobilized. So folks with emotion dysregulation are struggling across the board with overwhelming emotions. The knob is turned way up on their emotional life, all the way to, you know, to high. And then that gets reflected, as you you described, in how they behave. So whether that's how they behave interpersonally or how they behave towards themselves, maybe harming themselves, Um, things like binge eating could be a result of the emotion dysregulation getting so high. And that's how you're trying to control that that feeling. Or for someone else, it may be outbursts of anger. Uh, For someone else, it might be cutting. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, So self-injury, sudden anger. And certain, certainly even substance uh, use is, is, is a part of that behavioral dysregulation. Why is it that some people are better at regulating their emotions than others? Well, that's a great uh, and, and, and somewhat difficult to answer question, I think. You know, uh, Linehan has postulated that emotion dysregulation is partly hardwired and partly a product of environments that are invalidating. And another part of what creates emotion dysregulation, of course, is trauma. And early childhood trauma, early uh, adverse experiences in childhood seem to impact the development of neural pathways between the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system. So we don't get very emotionally regulated. We don't have, if you don't have much uh, of a connection between your prefrontal cortex where you do your reasoning and thinking and deciding and your limbic system, uh, sort of the primitive emotional centers of the brain, um, then you often just react emotionally because you really don't have on board executive functioning. You're not, you're not really able to think about and analyze a, a situation. So it's a problem. And so kids who have early trauma don't develop as many of these neural pathways and are almost by definition uh, less emotionally regulated uh, because there's less of a, a communication between those parts of their brain. Mm-hmm. When I first um, started learning DBT in graduate school, it was one of those experiences of why didn't they teach us this all along? Like, why isn't this part of our curriculum? Because the way that DBT is broken down is into four core skills, and some of them are more acceptance-based skills, and some of them are more uh, change-based strategies. But they're, they're concrete strategies that we all could use. And then in particular, if you have issues with emotion dysregulation, they're, they're very helpful. So I'd love to go through each of these categories with you and then talk about how you teach them in the workbook, what you see in your clinical practice, and then maybe even draw some of the cards that you have in this, this skills deck that came, that came out. We can talk a little bit about that. But let's just start with the four categories of DBT skills. So the four... Uh, key strategies or skills that Linehan uh, has outlined are first distress tolerance. So you start with that. 
Mindfulness is the second major skill, the ability to pay attention to the present moment. The third skill is emotion regulation and the ability to watch one's emotions and, and to turn the knob down on emotional reactions. And interpersonal effectiveness is the fourth, learning how to relate to others in ways that are effective and get our needs met as opposed to angry, rejecting, hostile interactions. One of the things that ACT practitioners may, may bristle at in the distress tolerance skills is the use of uh, distraction. And that's actually a skill that you're teaching, encouraging, but in DBT, it's effective distraction. Can you speak to that? Well, first of all, distraction really does work. They've done some component analysis and found that distraction is actually one of the most effective of the distress tolerance techniques. And even though acceptance commitment therapy uh, doesn't like distraction because it it's a deliberate attempt to, to downregulate or, or, or uh, suppress an emotion. It does work really well. There are all kinds of ways that uh, we can distract from uh, intense emotions. But I think one of the, the best ways is to just plan something nice, to, to plan to do something that you're going to enjoy and focus on that plan and distract yourself with a future event that you are anticipating with pleasure. But there are lots of other distraction techniques. And uh, I think it's crucial for people who are struggling with emotion dysregulation to learn some of them because they really work. I had a client that experienced a lot of panic attacks and the ambulance showed up and they gave her some advice that she then gave me that now I'm using with my, <laughs> with my clients. They told her during her panic attack, one of the best things to do is to read a sentence out loud. And they gave her a piece of paper and had her read out loud. And she said it was incredibly helpful. So that's a perfect example of you're in a panic attack. Maybe distracting yourself could be helpful in this moment. Another option would be feeling the sensation and opening and diffusing and all of that. But it's all about effectiveness, I think. Exactly. It's about what works. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that works, by the way, is that when we're, when we're panicking, we're really operating mostly from the right side of the brain. And, and forcing oneself to, to read words, we have to move over to the left side of the brain. And so uh, it, really, it really does distract because we're literally using a different part of our brain. Yeah. So take it from the, the ambulance, you know, yeah. paramedics. They see, a lot of, they see a lot of panic attacks. They got some good advice. They know what they're doing. Yeah. Another distress tolerance example from one of my clients was one that she struggled a lot with binge eating and she described a time when she had brought home all this binge food in her car and she got out of the car and she was about to go on this binge and she took all the food, she put it behind her car and then drove backwards across it and then drove backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. And it was this example of, you know, it sometimes can seem kind of crazy to do this, but it's actually going to benefit you in the, the long run. And it's how to survive a crisis without making it worse, which is really what distress tolerance is all about. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and having in each client has to figure out what uniquely works for them. Mm -hmm. And some distress tolerance techniques are extremely effective for individual A and individual B, it's, it's completely worthless. And so we, and we have to experiment with every one of them to see, mm -hmm. you know, uh, what is uniquely useful. Mm -hmm. 
So I have your, your DBT skills card deck here. And what this is, is it's a number of the DBT skills distilled down into individual cards and they're in different sections. So you have cards for distress tolerance skills. You have cards for the emotion regulation skills. So I'm going to pull one of the distress tolerance skills cards here. And this is the one that I pull. It's number five and it says, relax and soothe using touch. Make a list of the tactile sensations that are most pleasing for you. Every day, do something that feels good on your skin, such as taking a warm shower, applying a soothing skin lotion, or petting a soft animal. Start today. So what distress tolerance skill does that lie under? Well, that's under self-soothing. We know that if you pay attention to something that feels good, and, and it feels good to one of your senses, it tends to distract from painful emotions. So we have, you know, five self-soothing strategies. One that relates to uh, things that you taste, that taste good, smell good. The touch that we just talked about, kinesthetic, uh, auditory, and uh, visual. So there are self-soothing strategies for all five senses. And we encourage people to actually choose in advance um, two or three of these self-soothing strategies in each of these uh, sensory domains. And it works really great. It's, it works as a distraction, but it also works to add pleasure to your life, you know, to, to, to make your life at a moment when you're feeling distressed, suddenly about something that feels good. And, and to bring these positive sensory experiences in uh, at the very moment that you are struggling with emotions. And I think therapists can model this in their offices. So for example, in my office, I keep essential oils that just right by the um, client's chair that they can use if they want to try some of those on. I always have fresh flowers in the office. I always have a, a blanket and has a nice texture to it. And just tending to those things for our clients, and then we can also direct, you know, direct clients to use some of that even during our sessions can be helpful as practicing the self-soothing skill right there. It's great to model it. And I think it's also important to consider that some of these self-soothing uh, activities can have symbolic value as well. Like I have a client who's had a very strong, good relationship to her mother. And her mother <clears throat> wore a, a perfume that was smelled like violets. And so she keeps a, a little vial of violet perfume with her at all times. And when she smells that, she feels her mother's presence and her mother's support. So it not only smells good, but it has a, a, a special meaning and, uh, and symbolic representation for her. I, I carry a, a little, it's a, it's a little disc that was given to me by someone I love very much. And when I, when I touch that disc, I often feel a little bit more courage or uh, I feel more comfortable somehow or optimistic. Helping folks develop a number of these self-soothing strategies and ideally, a couple of them having some of this uh, symbolic value can be a hugely important strategy for uh, emotion regulation. It makes me think about just some of the things that if you had a healthy relationship with a parent, they may have done for you. You know, like I send off my kids when they have a sleepover with a little necklace of mine or a little symbol for them to hold on to. Mm -hmm. But sometimes we haven't been taught that and we need to learn, le learn how to do that. Symbolic meaning is important. It also links to the second 
skill set that you're talking about, which is mindfulness. And you spend a lot of time in DBT. It's sort of woven, I think, throughout all of the different skills is this really core um, skill of mindfulness. Can you speak a bit to that and how it's used in DBT? Yeah. Uh, DBT really uses mindfulness as a coping strategy, which is very different from acceptance therapy, which uses mindfulness as a really to, to turn toward face and expose oneself to whatever, whatever is happening, whatever one is experiencing. But in, in DBT mindfulness, its major function is to get people out of ruminative processes, the repetitive negative thinking that's so much a part of motion dysregulation. Mindfulness seems to work really well to help people get out of their, these repetitive negative thoughts. So if we get focused on the present moment, we're not thinking about all our mistakes in the past. We're not thinking of dangerous and horrible things that are going to happen to us in the future. Um, and, and attending to our sensory experience in the now is very regulating. It's emotionally regulating because usually we can take refuge in the present moment. The present moment is just things that are happening around us that, uh, that may feel actually rather pleasant. And so attending to what, what, what I see, what I hear, and we use a lot of five senses exercise and spending a minute and a half or so really f- focusing on the present moment of each, each of these sensations. And that works wonders for people because it gets them right into the present moment and it gets them out of whatever their negative thoughts uh, have, have been that have been triggering painful affect. Probably the most frequently used mindfulness skill that um, I use now from DBT is wise mind. And if you're my client, you know that word (laughs) because it's balancing the wisdom from emotion mind and the wisdom from rational mind and then finding a greater wisdom, a dialectic of the two. Uh, Can you speak about wise mind, how you teach it and how you use it? So I agree. Wise mind is a tremendously valuable strategy. How I teach it is I have, uh, I, I, first of all, it's important to differentiate between emotion mind and, and wise mind and, uh, and rational mind and help clients recognize that what are each of these minds and how do they look and how do they feel and, and their limitations. Emotions send us messages that are action urges that push us to do certain things, some of which may not be very good for us. And sometimes rational mind comes up with all kinds of thoughts that actually don't lead to any appropriate or skillful action. And we just get stuck and, and paralyzed. So wise mind, I teach it, and you, I don't know, we may teach it differently, but I teach it by having the client focus on the center of the breath, that, that spot right at the center of your breath, which is your diaphragm, and bring all of the attention to that, that place in the body and, and observe the breath. And when thoughts arise, let, in, let them go and just observe the breath for a while until you get really, really centered. Before they enter into the wise mind process though, I usually have them start with a question. You know, what should I do about such and such? If they're struggling with making a decision or are developing a, a wise or effective course of action, so I'll have them ask that question first before entering the wise mind uh, meditation and wait. Uh, and, and, and I'll tell them sometimes the answer isn't going to come during, during wise mind meditation. It may come later in the day. It may come spontaneously. But just ask the question, do the meditation, and allow yourself 
um, your wise mind to do its work, it eventually will produce uh, some kind of response or answer. Because, yeah, Is that I, how you teach it? I teach it a little differently for, you know, for every client. And sometimes I just teach it as an inner knowing that maybe is getting clouded or pushed around by emotional mind or reasonable mind because we can feel those two arguing out. Thinking about an example for me this week of um, debating whether or not to go on a field trip with my kids on Wednesday or to work and get some work done during that three-hour period of time. And I had my rational mind telling me to work and I had my emotional mind feeling guilty for not going on the field trip. And they just bounced each other back and forth and I couldn't decide Mm -hmm. until early this morning when I was out running and I just had this knowing. And and what I love about Marsha Linehan is that she really teaches that that we all have a wise mind and it's there and and how to climb down that sort of inner staircase into that place underneath that is calm and centered and knowing and maybe honors all of it, Mm -hmm. honors the emotion mind, honors the reasonable or rational mind, whatever you want to call it. And I think that meditation or visualization is one way of getting there. Uh, but there's there's other ways of maybe even being just in partnership with with a friend that we can notice our wise mind show up, or we can see our wise mind in in other people, like a tuning fork, you know, things mm-hmm. that we tune into. But it's a beautiful skill, and I think in particular my work with eating disorders, it's a skill that is really at the foundation of a lot of decision making uh, that, that is helpful decision making. So I have your your deck here. I'm going to pull. A mindfulness card from the deck and ah, this is a real okay so this one's a related mind but different than wise mind it's beginner's mind mm-hmm. and so this card says it's card number 22 use beginner's mind you can talk about, about what that is but it says today engage with every situation and relationship as if you were seeing it for the first time without making judgments and without being critical instead be mindful of your actions and observations do your best to notice something new that you might have missed in the past. Try it today. So beginner's mind, yeah. what's, what is that? Well, it's such an important uh, strategy and technique because so much of what drives emotion dysregulation are, are judgments. We make, we make judgments about other people, negative judgments, and get very angry. We make negative judgments about ourselves and get very depressed and ashamed. Uh, so judgments really are the source of so much psychological pain. I, I, I would make a guess that 75% of the actual psychological pain people suffer is, is judgment-related. And, and folks who are emotionally dysregulated seem to have a specially vicious part of their, their mental process that, that engages in very, very black-and-white judgments. Things are very good or they're very bad. People are very good or they're very bad. They themselves are very good or very bad. And these, uh, these dichotomous judgments end up inflaming enormous uh, problems of rage and self-loathing. So beginner's mind is taking an experience as if you've never seen it before, but the, but the process is paying attention to what is this experience? What am I seeing? What am I hearing? What am I feeling? What is this thing that I'm, I'm experiencing right now? And then when their judgment shows up, say there's a judgment and let me get back to paying attention to what I am experiencing right now and looking for something interesting and new about it, trying to, trying to observe it carefully so that, so that you see something 
that perhaps you haven't seen or hear something you haven't heard before. So beginner's mind is, is a very crucial strategy and technique to learn to start, to, to learn to actually recognize the difference between judgment. It, it's, a, it's a form of meditation. Usually we t- when we meditate, we focus on something like the breath. And then when you have thoughts, you notice them and, and bring your attention back to the breath. Well, in this case, uh, you focus on experiencing this thing in front of you that you are, uh, you are now observing. And when you have judgment thoughts, you note them and bring your attention back to experiencing it again. So it's, it's a lovely meditation and very powerful strategy. To- it's a great one to use with um, body image. So many times we do our morning look in the mirror and we just go straight to judgment about what we see in that mirror, whether it's our face or our body. And if you take a beginner's mind as if you've never seen this face before and you look at the shape of your eyes or the texture of your lips, it can be a very different experience because judgments are a shorthand way of experiencing the present moment. But being a beginner's mind uh, that all falls away and you just see what is. And you can then you can practice that, take it one step forward and take that same beginner's mind to looking at your child's face and yeah. look at the shape of their eyes and the texture of their lips. And then you start to appreciate that, wow, it's not going to always be this way. You know, I love beginner's mind. It's a very useful tool. And it traces really back to Buddhism, which a lot of Marshall Linehan's and DBT skills do. They, they integrate behavioral psychology, but also Zen Buddhism and some contemplative prayer and, she was really groundbreaking in terms of that. Grateful to her for that. Yeah, she was. She her so much of, of what she developed in DBT was from her trip to India and all all of her experiences there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just one point about judgments is the, the problem. One of the big problems with judgments is they take us out of the present moment. Yeah. And when we enter the present moment, we can finally take refuge from judgments. In the present moments, judgments don't exist. Those are mental processes that, that, are, that are actually uh, leaving the present and, t- and taking us into conceptual thought. So anyway, I, I just it's a, it's a beautiful technique, a beautiful strategy, and I think it's a great contribution that she brought it into uh, you know, uh, Western psychology. Yeah, so practice it with your face in the morning. Another set of skills are the emotion regulation skills. How do we regulate our emotions effectively when they're strong, in the neg- maybe in the negative direction? Well, Marsha Linehan, of course, and, and DBT ha- has a whole suite of, of strategies. But really, emotion regulation starts with facing the emotion, actually learning about and experiencing it. Because, you know, the, the three things that cause emotion dysregulation are Repetitive negative thinking, number one, we've talked a little bit about that. Emotion-driven behavior actually makes our emotions more intense when we engage in emotion-driven behavior. And when we try to suppress our emotions and push them out of awareness, that makes them worse. So one of the things that we teach a lot is that emotions are a wave. The average emotion lasts seven minutes. And, and, and what keeps us stuck at the top of the wave are those three things, repetitive negative thinking, and acting on our emotions and trying to avoid and suppress our emotions. And that's how we get stuck with chronic emotional dis- disorders. Uh, we, we do one of those three things. And so emotion regulation starts with turning toward the emotion and, and learning about it and, and observing it. Emotion exposure is, is a crucial 
part of, of emotion regulation. And frankly, I think DBT could use a lot more emotion exposure. I, I think it's so important that it's, 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 it's fundamental and it's foundational for emotion regulations turning toward the emotion. But it's also important uh, after you've turned toward the emotion, if it's still overwhelming and you've observed it for a while, that you can do some things to cope and, and, and manage and downregulate the emotion. And of course, the emotion regulation part of DBT has a lot of those skills, uh, including things like acting the opposite and so forth. There are a lot of te- specific techniques to help turn the knob down on intense emotions, but it starts with facing them. Mm-hmm. It's sort of, I don't know if it was Tara Brock or where it sources back to, but the, the name it to tame it philosophy around emotion regulation, that just placing a name on it helps regulate it and then and making room for it, making friends with it, opening up that closet door and seeing what's in there. I, I, I also think that vulnerability to emotion is one of the things that we pass over quickly and we don't think about as therapists. There's a lot of things that make us more vulnerable to experiencing ex- an extreme emotion. And they're, they're just sort of basic self-care strategies. I was working with a client recently who was just talking about how much more anxious she was than usual and how life was just feeling overwhelming. And of course, I'm thinking, well, maybe we need to get contact with your psychiatrist and do a medication change. But then I started asking more questions and I learned that she had just changed her work schedule to doing the 2 a.m. shift. Mm-hmm. And it's like, of course, you're feeling more anxious because you're not, you're, your sleep schedule is completely off. Can you talk a little bit about reducing emotional vulnerability? Yeah, it's so important. And so, and a lot of things that we do with our bodies or are happening in our bodies are, are implicated in emotion dysregulation. So dealing with those vulnerabilities, if you're in chronic pain, it's really important to find some ways of, of dealing with that pain more effectively. People with chronic sleep disorders, it's been, it's been estimated that that's probably the greatest single contributor to emotion dysregulation is when people are uh, getting insufficient sleep or, or have a, a sleep disorder of some kind. So addressing sleep disorders, addressing the kinds of food we eat. Uh, that there are certain kinds of foods that actually create more dysregulation. We, if we load up with sugar, we're going to have uh, more dysregulation. And, and so paying attention to diet, paying attention to exercise, People who don't exercise are much more prone to dysregulation. So there are a lot of things we can do to deal with these vulnerabilities that are rooted in our bodies. And I think that's an important part of DBT is helping clients identify and recognize what those vulnerabilities are for them and changing those behaviors. And just go back for a second to exposure. One of the things that we've advocated for a lot in, in emotion exposure is, is being able to verbalize the emotion while you're watching it. So it's not, it's not just naming it and saying, oh, well, I'm feeling anxious, mm-hmm. but, but actually describing the emotion, describing, finding uh, as many words as possible for the emotion, physicalizing, how big is it? How, what color is it? And then also looking at other aspects. What's the physical sensation that goes with this emotion? What are the thoughts that go with this emotion? What are the action urges? And really paying attention and verbalizing all of these components of emotion so that people get used to recognizing what makes up 
an emotional experience? What, what is it composed of? And as they learn to describe it, it becomes less frightening and less overwhelming. So the, the ability to describe emotions regulates and it, it inc- improves the stress tolerance uh, tremendously. It's sort of like the experience of how you feel right before you're about to write a big paper and then how you feel when you've outlined it and broken it down and taken a look at all the different components of it. All of a sudden, it doesn't feel quite so scary and overwhelming. And it's the unknown that's, I think, scary about emotions. And, and when we don't have awareness of what this whole inner uh, landscape is, it, it can feel overwhelming. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's very much part of the exposure. And, and you talk more about emotion exposure in your emotion efficacy work. And, and we had a Prelia West on the show talking specifically about how to, how to do that. And she gave some great, uh, I think she worked with me around one of the things that I was feeling overwhelmed about. So go back and listen to that episode. Uh, we'll put it in the show notes if people want to learn more about that. I think it's a, a really helpful strategy. Okay, let's pull an emotion regulation skill from your deck. Oh, this is very related to what you said. It's number 28, and it's say how you feel. To help you recognize and cope with how you feel, it's often helpful to say it out loud. This might sound silly, but stating how you feel, like I'm scared, highlights how you feel and can help you choose the best coping strategy, like use mindful breathing. Try it today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, say how you feel. Very yeah, nice. and, that, and that really, I think, is an important step because, you know, folks who are struggling with emotion dysregulation are often emotionally phobic. They are really afraid of, of paying attention to their emotions. They're afraid of, of, of re- looking at them at all. And, and when an emotion begins to surface for them, their first reaction is to try to, you know, get rid of it. But of course, as I, as I was saying, trying to suppress or get rid of the emotion usually makes it worse. It, it intensifies the emotion. It, it actually has the opposite effect than, of what the person wants when they're pr- trying to push it away. So naming the emotion, just allowing yourself to say, oh, I'm feeling scared or I'm feeling kind of sad, leads to, first of all, a recognition of, oh, this is, what I'm ha- this is what's happening to me. But also it may lead to, as the card says, choosing better skills. And what, so I'm feeling this way. What, what shall I do? What can I do? There's, there's, uh, my, I can, I can engage in motion-driven behavior and make it worse, but maybe I can use some of my DBT skills and actually do, deal with this feeling more effectively. And if you're a parent or you work with kids, I think that spending some time doing that with our kids, whether it's they hit their knee on a, the corner of a table and you just say, "Where does it hurt?" show me and tell me what happened and what does it feel like? Is it, is it like a, like a spiky feeling or like a dull ache? Like describe it to me that we're teaching our kids how to do that with our physical pain, but also to do that with some of the emotional pain, staying in that space long enough before you start going to the problem solving of what are we going to do about it now? And you're making such a great point because, because when you look at a child who's, who's just gotten overwhelmed by falling down scraping their knee and they're flooding. They're flooding with, yeah. with distress. And, and as soon as you get them to start describing what's going on, you, you notice everything shifts and that flooding stops. And now the child is finding words for their experience. And the experience ceases to be something that's, that's overwhelming and totally threatening. It's now just something that we can talk about. Yeah. We don't always have to run straight for the ice pack or the Band-Aid. 
Let them talk about it first, yeah. but we'll still get you the ice pack. And that's sort of DBT in a nutshell, right? They had acceptance, but also change. So interpersonal effectiveness skills, man, we could all use some of these. And when I think about these skills, I think about Marsha Linehan juggling these three components of uh, balancing the objective of what we want to get in a relationship, balancing the relationship, how we want other people to feel about us, and then also balancing our own self-respect. And there's different points in times when those maybe one may be stronger than the other. Sometimes we may even have the interpersonal skills on hand, but we don't use them. So what gets in the way of being interpersonally effective? Well, if you have the skills and and you don't use them, what's getting in the way is your, a lack of mindfulness. You're, mm-hmm. you're, you're not aware of, a mo- of the moment of choice. We talk a lot about the moment of choice. The moment of choice is when you've gotten triggered. You've, you've, something has happened that has uh, triggered a strong emotional reaction. You, uh, you feel threatened in some way. And if you're not mindful and aware of that experience that, oh, I this just happened to me. I just got triggered. I am feeling hurt or I am feeling scared or I'm feeling ashamed. Uh, if I don't, if I don't notice that and I, and I don't have awareness that that moment of being triggered emotionally is also a moment of choice that I have a choice. I, I can, I can do emotion driven behaviors. I can, I can follow the action urge that the emotion is pushing me toward, or I can do something that's effective. I can do something that I've decided in advance would be a better way to handle this this particular situation. So um, step one is we have to be aware when we're triggered for any behavior change. So, but number two, we have to have a plan. What, what am I going to do instead? I've got my old action urge, my old emotion-driven behavior. I, I, that's a well-worn path. The neural pathways that lead, lead from getting triggered to, to that action is they're, they're very well established. But I have to also then get clear, what is my alternative? And so it's very important to work with people to develop, in, in this case, assertiveness scripts. How can I express my feelings and needs in a way that's effective? And planning that in advance. And so helping clients identify likely situations that are going to be coming up in the near future where they're going to get triggered. And, and, and working with them to mindfully learn to observe that moment when they're triggered, to notice when, when they, they've gone into that, that triggered painful state. And then, oh, and I have a plan that goes with that. And I want to say something about that, too, because one of the things that we've done that's very different in this book than we've done before is, is we're using uh, cognitive rehearsal to help with this. So what we'll, a cognitive rehearsal, which, you know, uh, is an old uh, technique that uh, goes back in the early 70s, but April West and I kind of sewed it together with uh, exposure to make the rehearsals more effective. And that's what we're doing now with all, the, with all the DBT skills. So the first thing is, okay, let's, let's visualize that triggering experience. And, and then let's actually feel upset. Let's, let, let's visualize it long enough that we can get up to a five or six suds and really feel uh, a level of distress. But now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to notice the distress. I'm going to recognize that this is a moment of choice. Here it comes. Here's that urge to do that old, uh, old motion-driven behavior. I can feel it. And now we have the, the client visualize uh, new values-based or effective behavior that uh, a new response, and it might be, you know, expressing their needs in an assertive way, setting a limit, asking for something, 
or, or even just acknowledging that they have had, they've been hurt, that they've had this experience, this emotional reaction. But the new behavior then is visualized right next to the experience of the, uh, of the, of the triggering event and, and the emotion that went with it. So by using exposure and, and, and having clients learn new responses and practice, visualize new responses in the face of the pain and, and during the pain, it makes it more likely they'll be able to use it out in the world when they're triggered. It's like athletes have been using this for a while where they'll imagine themselves, you know, at the game, the pressure's on, it's the end, you got two minutes left to make the shot, and then imagine yourself centering, taking a breath, and shooting the ball, right? Yeah. And, and there's good research on doing that type of visualization. The part that you're really adding in is, being in the emotional state, that context-dependent learning that you're practicing the skill with. And that's very helpful rather than just talking about the skill, you're actually practicing it in a visualization way. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you can practice new behaviors yeah. and you can also practice your coping skills. Yeah. You know, let's visualize the, the activating experience and let's notice that you're getting upset. Then what we're going to do is observe the emotion for a little bit and then we'll cope it down. The coping behaviors are so, so much better and more easily learned when they're learned in an activated state. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You mentioned an assertiveness script, and I really appreciate how on this workbook you took the assertiveness script, the, the dear man that I learned when I was in doing DBT, which was, I always have to go back and look at the acronym and then remember which letter. So there's a ton of acronyms in traditional DBT, dear man being one of them, where mm -hmm. you're doing an assertiveness exercise with somebody and you're saying, okay, first D stands for describe, and then E and dear man stands for express and A stands, you know, but, but your assertiveness script is way simplified, pared down, and just four steps. Can you spell it out for us? Absolutely. We call it, I think I feel I want. Uh, and, then, and then there's a contingency piece. But I think is just, what, is, what are the facts of the situation? What, what is it that's happened here? And, and I have to describe the facts non-judgmentally, with without pejorative language, just, just the facts. What so if you're exactly? asserting yourself to somebody else, something that you want, you I start with that. I have to describe the situation to them mm -hmm. without judgment, uh, without aspersions. It's just, this is what has happened. I think. Uh, that's the I, I think part. Mm -hmm. The I feel part is just I statements. What, what is my emotional reaction? Not, not that you, you made me feel this way or I feel that you're a bad person, <laughs> which is not, not an emotional, it's not an I statement, but just I feel sad or I feel hurt or I feel scared or what, whatever my emotional reaction is to this situation and, and simply sharing that. And then the I want part is, is identifying what specifically I would like the other person to do or change. And, and it has to be a behavior. It can't be, I can't ask them to change their feelings or change their attitudes. Uh, all I can do is ask them to change their actual actions and behaviors. And I usually, it's, it's, it's helpful to ask for one thing as opposed to multiple things. So ask for a single behavioral change. In the, in the I want part. Now, we have to acknowledge, though, that people don't always do what we want, even if we ask them very nicely or assertively. And so the fourth component is the self-care solution, which is how I will take care of myself if, if you and I can't work together to, to make some kind of change and address my need here. A self-care solution is not a punishing, is not designed to punish the other person or, or harm them. 
but it's about how I need to take care of myself if I can't get your help in this situation. And, and that's, in some ways, that's a very important part of the script because if the person is unmotivated to, to help you or respond to your needs, you have to provide a contingency to get, to get them uh, interested sometimes. So a self-care solution is, is important. And we have people work in advance to figure out the, I, I think, I feel, I want part of this, and what would be an appropriate self-care solution? And, and so they have that pretty clear and often will rehearse it in session so that when an identifiable and likely trigger event happens, uh, they can use the skill. It's there and it's available to them. Right. It's a great skill for asking for what you want or what you don't want from somebody. So, for example, this is the second time that you've been on our show. If after the first time I wanted you to come back on, what would the I think be? I think we had a good conversation or we how do you make that not a judgment? Um, well, I think, uh, yeah, you, you have to be careful about the judgment part, but yeah. it could be this conversation, I think, was very useful to our audience. Yeah. And I, I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And and then uh, I feel I excited like about, yeah, about the possibility come that's gone. Topic yeah, I, I want you to come back. And if you decide not to come back, I may have one of your colleagues. Yeah, on. you have a contingency. Right. You know, the you contingency. Burn my book or something. You know? Yeah, <laughs> that, would, that would not be regulated. <laughs> right. So it's, it's a great tool. Having these shorthand in your pocket, rehearse it, plan it out, then will be a lot more effective when you're actually going in and, and it's, the stakes are a little bit higher. Yeah. yeah. Great. Great. So let's pull in our last skill set here, our interpersonal effectiveness skill. And oh, this is a nice one. Practice making simple requests. Find safe opportunities to practice making simple requests. For example, ask a stranger for the time or directions in a store. Ask an employee to help you find something. With friends, ask for a small favor. The more you practice, the easier it will get. Yeah. yeah. And it, you know, it, it's true that a lot of folks who struggle with their emotions have a hard time asking for things. It's scary. And, and, they, and, and often it's because they grew up in, in, in validating environments where their needs and their feelings weren't important or were disparaged in some way. And so asking for things is dangerous. And, and, and sometimes they have to learn with baby steps, you know, asking for some directions and asking somebody for the time uh, or whatever it is, very simple. Or you know, in your supermarket, you know, where, where's the produce section here? And just, just mm-hmm. asking simple questions is a good foundational and beginning uh, strategy to, to learn more about assertiveness. There's another assertive uh, tool that we use a lot, and it's, it's about limit setting. And it's very simple. It's, it's, it's much simpler than, than Marcia, uh, Marcia's approach, but basically it's two steps. You, you start by saying, you validate the other person's experience. Whatever it is they're doing uh, or want you to do, you, you, you totally validate and appreciate why they would want that. And so you always start with the validation part. And then you set the limit and say, but actually, I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. And, and you say, I don't want to do this because it doesn't feel good to me. You don't, and it's really important when you set a limit not, not to have a rationale for why, you know, it's like, I don't want to do this because, you know, some, some rational reason. Because the, then that they, then that's going to lead to debate, and and the other person's going to attack it. And you know, you shouldn't think yeah. that way, blah, blah blah. But in fact, if we just keep it very simple, validate the other person, and say that I don't want to do this because it doesn't feel good to me, um, it really cuts off a lot of arguments, but also helps the other person feel okay about their own needs. 
lot of the strategies and skills that we've talked about today, you'll see sort of this underlying theme of practice. And DBT is all about practice, 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 practice. The workbook that you offer has a lot of practices in it, some, some skills cards to continue your practice at home. And it's something that people can use either on their own or if they're in a DBT group or a therapist wants to use it with a client, it can be used in that way. So it's really bridging this traditional DBT approach of it's in a, in a group for you know, two hours at a time into the, to the real world and, and simplifies things and makes them really accessible. It's kind of cool for, for what you're saying about practicing. Uh-huh. Now we have clients, you know, just, you know, we, we get a card out that's something that they really do need to practice and we want them to carry it with them all that week and just, and just read it every day, reminding themselves, oh, I'm working on this. And they, and they keep the card with them because that's, that, that's their reminder that this is the thing they're practicing. So it's kind of cool for, for the point of view of homework and practice. Yeah. Well, I also think with DBT, I think people get bogged down. They just get bogged down by how much there's so much, it's too much. And therapists get bogged down by it. So actually what I appreciate about the card deck is I have this one card that lists 52 skills on it. And so even as a therapist, I could use this, just this one little card that lists the 52 skills to think about what I'm going to do in my session today, as opposed to having to go through a big manual. For me, that's what's helpful about it. And then, yeah, you could just pull skills at random, honestly, if you just pulled any skill out of the deck, it's probably going to be helpful. <laughs> so, but yeah, I, 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 I like this. I like the card deck. I think it's, I think it's good. Yeah. But yeah, you need the background a little bit to apply it well. So thank you for doing this work and for updating it with some of your wisdom and strategies that have, that have worked for you. Really appreciate you in, in bringing this to us. Thank you. Yes. So we'll link to all of that on our, on our website. And if you want to look up some of these cards, there's 52 skills on them, and they could be another kind of nice little tool to have uh, as well. And it's a pleasure and delight to have you back on the show. And we hope that you'll come back again talking about another book because you've got a lot of them. <laughs> I really enjoyed being with you and having our conversation. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. Our website is www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com. Take care, Dr. McKay.